projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast that... <laughs> um, okay. As I was saying, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host... <laughs> now cut that out. Wait your turn. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode six, Shadow Plays. My guest and I will be taking a look at The Shadow, his origins and various appearances on the big screen. So make yourself comfortable, darken the lights, and... <laughs> Does crime ever pay? I alone know. Okay, fine. just picked up a suspect answering that description you gave us. Oh, good. We got him by following up a tip from the shadow. Ever hear of the shadow? Certainly. I read the papers. Strange, they don't seem to know very much about him. No one does. I thought you might know something about him. <laughs> Why should I know anything about the shadow? You shouldn't, but I thought you might. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Those of you who enjoy adventure fiction, specifically the type that features pulp heroes from yesteryear, will likely be well acquainted with my guest, who has both documented such heroes and even continued the adventures of several of them with his own novels. He's also made significant contributions in the realm of comics and graphic novels. The gentleman of whom I speak is none other than Mr. Will Murray. Will, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Well, thank you, Bill, for inviting me. This should be fun. Yeah, I think so. You and I actually first made contact back when I was doing the magazine Television Chronicles, and you were among the writers who approached us and expressed some interest in possibly doing something for us, which I knew you from your Doc Savage work at that point, so I would have loved to have had you make a contribution, but that was uh, as we were kind of on the verge of flaming out. And yeah. uh, so I was never able to take you up on that, but this will give me a chance to put your your talents to use in, uh, in another way. So talking about the shadow, just as a background, he's known as a pulp hero. And so what, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the term, uh, what's a good general explanation for what pulp novels are or were? Well, pulp novels and pulp stories are stories of action. And that's the simplest way to express it. The old pulp editors used to say, action, action, action is our byword. And a pulp story, whether it's a detective story, a mystery, a Western, even a love story, which was a genre in those days, were stories of protagonists who encounter problems and solve them through direct action, as opposed to purely mental efforts. For instance, Sherlock Holmes, even though we kind of think of him as a little bit pulpy these days because he's endured and he's a popular culture kind of icon, his stories were stories of mental action more than physical action, although physical action was part of them. The physical action was subordinate to the mental action. So they were not pulp stories, 
a pulp story hero is a guy who with his fists or his gun and his brain will solve the problems of the story. Okay. And the term pulp in this usage just goes back to the type of paper that they were printing. Yeah, absolutely. It's about the low grade oatmeal style paper that most of the inexpensive magazines were printed on. And even to this day, the paperback novels, at least to the degree we still have smaller paperback novels, are printed on that cheaper paper. So how did you come to be a fan of these pulp adventures and eventually get to the point where you were writing them? Well, in the late 60s, I was transitioning from reading Marvel comics to paperback novels, and there was a constellation of books and authors available. And for some reason I cannot explain, I unconsciously or subconsciously gravitated towards the pulp writers. Edgar Rice Burroughs was the first. I bought one of his John Carter Mars novels. Shortly thereafter, I bought my first Doc Savage. The Shadow started coming out in paperback in 69, right in that first year. The Spider was later that year. G8 was that year. And so all of these pulp heroes from the 1930s were coming back into reprint via the new paperback revolution, as it was at that time. And I just gobbled that stuff up. That led me to writing articles about Doc Savage and other and, and collecting pulp magazines to catch up on the stuff that wasn't being reprinted. That led me to write articles for fanzines such as they were in those days which somehow, over a fairly short period of time, led me to launch my own fanzine, Duende, which was a survey of the pulp magazine world, as well as starting to get involved in advising bands of books on their Doc Savage reprint program, writing introductions to things, and uh, eventually, somehow, very long story, but the compressed version is I came into contact with Lester Dent's widow. Lester Dent wrote the original Doc Savage novels, most of them. And I became her literary agent and discovered an unused Doc Savage outline, got permission to write it and wrote it. And 11, 12 years later, Bantam Books published it. And I was off and running as a Doc Savage writer. But before that, I was ghosting the Destroyer paperback series, which was modern pulp in those days. And I wrote 40 of those. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And he's only made one movie appearance uh, thus far, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah. And and a a TV pilot. Oh, that's right. I remember reading about that. Yeah. Doc Savage was sort of, well, yeah, regardless of the chronology, Doc Savage was ultimately my introduction to the pulp novels. I just remember when Bantam was reprinting them and just the covers always fascinated me. But at the time I had not, when I f- was first seeing them as a kid, I had not really gravitated to that yet. I was still reading the Marvel comics. I was still reading Tom Swift Jr. But eventually I did pick up some of those Doc Savage novels and and kind of got hooked on them. Some exposure to other characters like the Shadow, Spider, that sort of thing over the years. But yeah, Doc Savage was you know, the, the big one for me. You've just published a couple of books back to back that chronicle the history of the Shadow character Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow, and The Dark Avenger, The Strange Saga of the Shadow. So tell us a little bit about those. Well, the most recent one, Dark Avenger, The Strange Saga of the Shadow, is an expansion of a book I actually wrote in college that went through two editions back in the 1980s. And it's been out of print a long time. It's basically a history of the Shadow magazine, its evolution, 
its characters, writers and editors who shaped it. And people have asked me to reprint it for the longest time, and I'm usually too busy with new projects. But people also started to ask me to reprint my articles in The Shadow that had appeared in the Sanctum reprints of The Shadow back in the, over the last almost 20 years. And I started to think about it more seriously, and I put together a monster of a book that did both. And then I, when I looked at it, I said, well, this is too big a book. It's a $50 book. Let's break it up. So I released first The Rise of the Shadow, which is a collection of articles and interviews with Walter Gibson, the original shadow writer, Theodore Tinsley, his understudy, the various editors and artists involved that I was able to interview while they were alive. It sold very well. And so we brought out the Dark Avenger book, which is the 1980 book, Expanded. And that's doing decently now. And I've already put together, believe it or not, another collection of remaining articles. And I was surprised by this, but even without necessarily combing everything, I've got 100,000 words of articles and interviews that could be reprinted in the next volume. Maybe that should be two volumes, but I don't know what kind of appetite there is out there for more shadow books other than maybe one more. Well, the history is always interesting to read about getting the different takes on it. And there's actually an umbrella title I noticed on Amazon for these first two, the Pulp History. Will Murray's Pulp History series. When I released Dark Avenger in December of last year, because I, my novels are in series, I've got Dark Savage, I've got The Spider, I've got Sherlock Holmes, I've got Lovecraft's Cthulhu. It occurred to me, wait a minute, this is a series or at least the beginning of a series. So I named it with the second book. And now we have a third book in the offing, and I'm dusting off my Lester Dent biography, which was never published, and thinking, well, maybe that'll be another book in this series. Sounds perfect. So now, as far as the Shadow himself, we talk about him as a pulp hero, but unlike some of these others, Tarzan, you mentioned Sherlock Holmes, and various others, he didn't start out in the pulps. So no, can you give us a thumbnail evolution of his origins. In the summer of 1930, around the time Conan Doyle had died, same month in July, I believe, the Street and Smith Publishing Company, the biggest pulp publisher at that time, decided that they would use radio, a very new medium at that point, in, in terms of commercial applications, to promote their detective story magazine, which was the first pulp magazine devoted to all detective stories. And the idea was they would have a dramatization of the story on Thursday night promoting the magazine, which was weekly, which came out on Friday. So you could hear one of the stories and buy the magazine the next day. And so in the end of July 1930, they launched the Detective Story Magazine Hour. And after, I think, two or three episodes, they thought they needed to punch it up a little. And they decided that they would, they needed a kind of announcer narrator, someone to uh, frame the story. And they came up with the shadow, who would be a, sort of the voice of conscience or the, the voice of fate. He would be like talking about, you're about to hear the story of the downfall of such and such a criminal. And, the, you know, his catch line was the shadow knows because he was omniscient. But he wasn't a character in the story. And he wasn't exactly a narrator. He was more of a framer of the story. 
And they cast an actor named James Lacurda, who did a decent job, but not good enough. And they recast Frank Reddick in the role, who just did an incredibly bizarre, frightening shadow. And that caught listeners' attention. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? (laughs) The shadow knows. And suddenly the shadow, the shadow knows, became you know, national catchphrases. And Henry Ralston, the vice president, general manager of Street and Smith said, we better publish a shadow magazine fast before someone scoops that up on us because we need that trademark. Coincidentally, uh, a writer named Walter Gibson, a journalist and magicians, magician, magician friend and confidant of Houdini and Thurston and, and several other major magicians of the 20th century happened to wander into the Street and Smith offices trying to sell them fact articles to detect the story magazine. And the editor-in-chief said, we're looking for someone to write this shadow thing. Their regular writers didn't want to bother with it because it wasn't theirs. And it was a novel. You know, you had to have the time. Would you be willing to do it? And Walter had an idea about a mysterious character that he'd already sort of started working on for a hardcover book. And he pitched the idea, and the editor said, go with it. So Walter punched out a shadow novel. They got it into print in time to trademark it, and they said, well, we'll do four of these. And, you know, because right now the idea is hot. Well, before Walter could really do the entire four, it was suddenly a monthly. And before it could even get warmed up on the monthly, it was being they wanted him to do it twice a month. And Walter's responsibility was basically take this character that was an attitude, a mocking, sinister voice, a laugh and a catchphrase, and turn him into some kind of interesting character that would support a novel every month and then every other week. And he did that by essentially bringing in his influences, which included Sherlock Holmes. The shadow was very much like Holmes. He even looked like Holmes under the slouch hat and the cloak. But Walter was a big fan of spooky stuff, and he had seen the Dracula stage play a few years earlier and been very impressed by it because a magician friend of his had helped engineer one of the stunts where Bela Lugosi in the stage play in his Dracula cape, which was lined in purple, I think a cloud of smoke or something, dropped through a trap door and was replaced by a mechanical bat flying across the stage which was a very inventive thing. And he said, well, you know, he thought his character would be kind of like a benign Dracula, a Dracula who was on the side, who seemed sinister, but was on the side of good, who would rescue people. So he turned the radio shadow, which was the voice of fate, into the hand of fate, because the early shadow novels were about people in trouble and the shadow coming in and out of the story to rescue them and punish the bad guys and such. And so before he knew it, he was on a roller coaster ride of having to punch out two novels a month. And that's how The Shadow went from being a nebulous character to being Lamont Cranston, who, for one story, Walter said The Shadow was millionaire Lamont Cranston. The next story, he changed his mind and said, No, he's impersonating the real Cranston. We don't know who The Shadow is. And he kept that imposture up for about six, seven years before he revealed who The Shadow really, really was. Is that a long answer to a short question? It is. Oh, but it's in entirely appropriate. And, you know, there's some other points you made in there or things you alluded to that I want to explore a little bit. I mean, that bi-weekly publication schedule, that's insane. But apparently Walter Gibson was, from the description in your book, 
when did the guy come up for air? When did he eat? Well, he and his editor, John Nanovic, developed a way to approach this. And the approach was to develop a detailed outline. And the detailed outline laid out the cast of characters, the main crime, shall we say, or series of crimes, and who the subordinate characters. Walter liked to use the term proxy hero. That was the person in distress whom the shadow would either take an interest in or would rescue and then take an interest in or would rescue and go on to defeat the bad guys without the proxy hero's involvement. A shadow manuscript, once they got to the monthly stage, went from 70, 75,000 words to about 50, 60,000 words. That's 200 manuscript pages. If you break it down, that's basically 100 pages a week. But he worked faster than that. But 100 pages a week isn't a lot if you can type and you can think on your feet and you do an acceptable first draft that the editors could then clean up. And Walter's gift was he'd worked in newspaper offices under pressure, so he already knew how to compose on a typewriter fast against a tight deadline. Newspaper deadlines are brutal. They're immediate. Whereas magazine deadlines are, well, we got a few weeks. So Walter developed a writing style that was narrative-driven, so it was more plot than anything else. Characterization was fairly perfunctory. Characters could be described as good guys, bad guys. They had certain 1930s speech patterns. The bad guys tended to talk a lot alike. The good guys tended to talk a lot alike. The cops tended to talk a lot alike. So his inventiveness went into the plot and the development of the plot and a narrative voice and a mysterious character that by himself grabbed readers. And so he was able to boil down the process to a degree that he could knock out a story in four days if he had to, or if he was under inspiration. But he tried to do it. He tried to take a little more time. And, you know, as the years went by, he would sometimes put it off for a week or two and then cram in four or five days before deadline, and he always got the book done. But it was an approach to writing, since a mystery story tends to be intellectual on a certain level, characterization isn't as important. Style isn't as important. He had a very straightforward meat and potatoes style. That's what Speed and Smith wanted, because they launched with Nick Carter dime novels a generation or two previously. So Walter found a way to tell the story in a very structured, and clever way. And then things kind of came full circle a little bit. Initially, he went from Detective Story Hour, then he was used on the Blue Coal Radio Review, and another radio program called Love Story Hour, all in that narrator or host type of uh, role. And then he gets his own series. He gets his own series again as the series becomes the shadow, but it's still him as a narrator. And this went on for a couple of three years, and Street and Smith wasn't happy about it because their magazine was outselling a lot of magazines. They wanted the character on the air, and Blue Cole, who was the sponsor, just wanted to keep the successful narrator shadow going. And finally, things came to a head, and I think they went their separate ways for a while. And then they came back and said, let's try this. And Blue Cole didn't think it was going to work, but they hired the young Orson Welles to play the shadow. And it did really well, really well. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. Richter, surely your activities in espionage have brought you in contact with those who have warned you against the shadow. The shadow? So you are the shadow. Oh, that got word to you, did he? Yes, but in a manner beyond your comprehension. Come on. 
But they changed the character. They made him Lamont Cranston for real. They added Margot Lane, his friend and companion. They streamlined all the other characters to a bare minimum. And they made the story simple. They, they, they seem to have modeled it after the Thin Man movies with Myrna Loy and I'm blanking on his name, uh, William Powell, that had been successful in that time frame. And so it was the man about town and his girlfriend solving crimes in more or less in high society or at least adjacent to high society, which is what the Thin Man stories are about. They were a wealthy married pair who just wisecracked their way through their adventures. Right. The thing also, and I, I draw the parallel to Superman, but the character, the shadow, as we've come to know him now over over the years, the way he's kind of uh, evolved into a single image and, and some of the other elements, that's actually kind of a composite of the radio version and the pulp version, right? Yeah. In the pulp magazines, the shadow did not have any supernatural powers except a certain amount of hypnotic ability that was not overplayed. On radio, he had the ability to cloud men's mind. And during the Orson Welles seasons, which was only two seasons, two years, I think, he had telepathy, mind clouding, and some other freaky abilities that were really over the top. What's the matter, Lamont? You seem preoccupied. Was anything troubling you? Yes, Margaret. Something is troubling me, but I'm blessed I know what it is. Would it be Dr. Waldeck? Ever since you talked to him at the club last night, you've been wondering if he just suspected that you are the shadow. I don't think he knows, Margot. Then what are you worrying about? Simply that all day long I've had the feeling that Dr. Waldeck has been trying to get in touch with me, or rather, I should say, with a shadow. But how could Margo, he? Waldeck practiced what he preached. He is a master of mental telepathy. Well, a shadow isn't exactly a novice at mental telepathy either. They dialed that down when Wells left and a new team of writers came in. So it was basically he cloud men's mind so they couldn't see him, which was great for radio because, the, as Walter told me, you know, it was great. Audience couldn't see him either. Yeah, that's true. And a number of those elements, both in terms of supporting characters and the, the clouding men's minds, forms of those would eventually be used in some of the movies. And we'll talk about them in more detail yeah. as we get through those. But now, actually, in between, before he got his own radio show that was what orson wells first was cast of the shadow in, in 1937 37 okay but he had already made his screen debut and this was still during the era of detective story hour i guess uh they universal brought him to the screen in a series of six two-reelers yes in 1931 they were the universal decided to capitalize on the shadow which was a new phenomenon everybody was Talking about the shadow, who is it? Because there was a big mystery who played the character on radio. They acted like, well, there is a shadow. He just comes into the studio secretly and records the program. Well, it wasn't true. But for a long time, there was a mystery who played the shadow, and they, they deliberately obscured that. And so they took that concept and made, I think, six two-reelers, of which four survived. The first one was filmed in New York City. And that ha actually had Frank Redick in the role. So that's one of the rare recordings that survived of Frank Redick doing the authentic shadow voice. <laughs> this is the shadow. Watch carefully while this story comes to life. <laughs> and then they moved the production to L.A. and it was a different actor. We don't know who it is for sure. And it's not the same voice. 
in preparation for doing this, because I knew we were going to talk about this stuff, I acquired a copy of a book called Flickering Shadows by my friend Ed Hulse, who went on a deep dive of all of the shadow movies from these Universal's two realers right clear through to the Alec Baldwin film. And there's a lot of stuff that's been uncovered that you wouldn't know from just watching it on video or YouTube or TV. And one of the things I learned was Frank Riedek was only in the first of these two reelers. Once the production moved to L.A., it was some random actor pretending to be the shadow. <laughs> I am the shadow of the law. I see all and know all. <laughs> yeah, and that first one was titled A Burglar to the Rescue. I listened to that again today just to hear that voice again. And that that opening, not the exact opening, but it was Redick's voice that was recycled as the opening of the Orson Welles episodes. That's not Orson Welles speaking in the openings of his episodes or even the later episodes. They kept that creepy opening that Frank Redick had initiated in 1931. Well, it's certainly iconic. Okay, that one survives and also House of Mystery, and the last one in the series, The Circus Show Up. What's the other one that survives? Trapped. Trapped. Trapped? Okay. Well, I would love to be able to get a chance to see that at some point. And what's interesting about it is that uh, if you watch it, the shadow's in the beginning, he's at the end, but he also pops into the middle of the story to kind of do a little monologue about how doom is coming to the the antagonist of the stories. And that must be how the radio show was. The shadow wasn't just there in the beginning of the end. He would pop in occasionally as a voiceover to tell the audience, uh, so-and-so is, thinks he's getting away with this crime, but the shadow knows better. <laughs> escaped. Ah, Corley, again you have escaped. Again you have beaten the law. They can't get you now. Can they? <laughs> yeah, I actually screened that at one point when, when my wife Debbie and I were living in Houston, sponsored by our church, we would do a monthly Saturday matinee program where we'd have a feature preceded by the traditional short programs, a, a two-reeler yeah. of some sort, a serial chapter, maybe a cartoon, some trailers, things like that. And one of the programs, I used the circus show up as the key short. And that was kind of fun. So then I hope I'm not skipping anything there, but going forward now to 1937. So I guess same year as the Orson Welles shadow debuts, then we get the shadow strikes with Rod LaRocque a feature film. The shadow strikes, I think went into the theaters before the Orson Welles started a few months before I, I, I should look that up, but I, that's based more on the pulp magazine it's actually based on one of Walter Gibson's old dark house type of shadow stories, The, the Ghost in the Manor, and it's, it's a very loose adaptation. And it strips the shadow down to his bare essence, where he's Lamont Cranston, who fights crime. In this movie, they make up this excuse to avenge the death of his father, who was, you know, murdered by criminals or something like that, the usual thing. And a little piece of lead stopped the brilliant career of one of the finest men who ever lived. I'm sorry I never knew your father, sir. He was a great liar, Henriks. Every racketeer in the country feared him. That's why they got him. But you're carrying on, sir. 
go after a fashion, but I'd give anything in the world if I could match that bullet. And he goes around in the cloak and the hat of the pulp shadow. He doesn't cloud men's minds. He doesn't use his gun very much. And he's... His voice isn't particularly creepy either. Hey, what's your game, mister? Well, it's uh, a form of solitaire. You know, Rod LaRock was a silent films actor, and he was trying to get his career going. And this was something that was offered to him. And it was short money because Grand National was a poverty row filmmaker that was about to go out of business, as a matter of fact. And so he did this one movie without the regular cast. There's no Margot Lane because she hadn't appeared on radio yet. She's a creature of radio. And none of the other characters, the Commissioner Western or Inspector Cardona or any of the agents are in this. And it's a very lackluster film. But a year later, this, and this is a thing that I learned from reading Ed Hulse's Flickering Shadows, this was going to be a four-movie series. And they only did two. And what's bizarre is the second one, they completely changed the approach. None of the promotion mentions The Shadow. It's called International Crime. It's, again, Rod LaRock. This time, he's got a, a Margot Lane, but she's called Phoebe Lane. And they sort of adapt the concept I shouldn't say the concept of the radio show. They kind of decide this is a not a pulp character. This is a radio character. So the, in this, the shadow is Lamont Cranston, who broadcasts as the shadow, giving crime news. Ladies and gentlemen, again this evening, the Daily Classic has the pleasure of presenting to you the world's most eminent criminologist and crime commentator, The Shadow. The Shadow speaks, bringing to you the latest news in the world of crime prevention and detection. This afternoon, a crime was committed which brought only tragedy to the perpetrators. Three young desperados held up a bank and escaped in their car. The police quickly picked up their trail. There was a running gunfight between bandits and police, which finally resulted in the three misguided young men plunging to their death. Once again, is proved the truth of that old adage, crime does not pay. His program is affiliated with the Evening Classic, which in the Shadow novels was a tabloid that one of the Shadow's agents, Clyde Burke, worked for as a reporter. And Burke is in this movie. So it's a kind of a weird collision between the pulp version and the radio version without being either one. Probably the most out there version in terms of its elements of a screwball comedy. It has nothing in common with the previous Rod LaRock Shadow entry. It's not bad for what it is, a 1930s screwball thing. It's low budget. It's... As many of those things are, the storyline is semi-comprehensible. But it's interesting to see as a take on the shadow as an emerging radio hero, as opposed to a pulp hero or radio narrator. And so they sort of put everything about the shadow into a blender and came out with this kind of different thing. And so for that reason, I kind of like it, even though it's not my shadow or anybody's shadow. And they were going to do four of them. But none of Grand National series were doing well, and Grand National had hired Jimmy Cagney at great expense away from, uh, I think it was Warner Brothers. Their first Jimmy Cagney movie tanked, and they tanked. If they were going to do more Shadows, that killed it, but it's, it's not even clear that that was going to happen anyway, but they planned for them. And then a couple of years later, we get a full-on serial starring Victor Jory as The Shadow, called just The Shadow, uh, which I believe was a, that was Columbia, right? 
That was Columbia, and it was based on three of Walter Gibson's shadow novels and one radio script that he, he did not write that was one of the Orson Welles scripts, I think. I think Welles was still there at that time. And so they took these novels and this radio script, and they kind of, again, threw them into a blender and came up with this 15-chapter serial. Tonight, the Limited, with all aboard, will be destroyed. The Shadow tries to prevent the disaster. He reaches a switch, is diverting the train when he is attacked by the Tiger's men. He fights them off, throws the switch, then is not unconscious in the path of the Roaring Express. See, the Shadow rides the rails. Next week's thrilling chapter of the Shadow. Walter Gibson told me that of all the Shadow things that were done during his lifetime, that was the one he thought was the most faithful. The shadow was back in his cloak and hat and being mysterious, which he wasn't in the Grand National second movie, uh, International Crime. There was no hat, no cloak, no laugh, no none of that stuff. Lamont Cranston was a radio broadcaster slash investigator. And this had some of the agents. Margot Lane was there. Veda Ben Borg played her. And some of the agents were there. It was a good villain, the Black Tiger, who could turn invisible from a special ray, so nobody knew who he really was. And he would speak through this Black Tiger head that would, you know, was electronically uh, augmented as a, as a speaker with lights in it and all that stuff. Gentlemen, this is the Black Tiger. I warn you that it is useless to resist my plans. Albert Hill, I have already struck at your airlines. And your railroad, Stephen Prescott. As for you, Mr. Kent, this is a definite warning. I am going to strike at your radio chain tonight. It's corny, but it's better than, you know, some of the things they were doing at that time. And Walter thought Victor Jory was the perfect shadow. He knew Jory, but I don't think he knew them that early. He and Jory shared an interest in magic. And I think he met Jory in later years, and he thought Jory was absolutely right for the part. And he was appreciative of the fact that a lot of his story elements, the Cobalt Club, Lamont Cranston, some of the agents were in the story, and the shadow was played more like the pulp shadow than the radio shadow. So he liked that. Yeah, visually, yeah, he, he did seem particularly well-suited for the role, very similar, that face, just really works well. Some differences, I mean, for one thing, he runs around in broad daylight, which I guess the pulp shadow tended to really specialize in he didn't do doing that. things at night. And also there's several people that know who he is, mm -hmm. which I guess was different from the pulps as well. And the thing that I think a lot of people remember about that serial is that he escapes death without escaping a lot of times. I mean, you know, a building explodes around him or falls on him or something like that. And, and he doesn't dive out the window at the last moment in the, in the beginning of the next chapter. No, he just, he just climbs out of the rubble. So he was uh, kind of invincible in that regard. It seems. A lot of the issues with that serial, like most serials that they were filmed in a very tight time frame. That was 30 days, which didn't include the Sundays. They took Sundays off according to Victor Jory. And when you have to produce that much film in 30 days, you're shooting night scenes a day, whether you mean to or not. Hence the shadows running around in broad daylight, which is stupid because what's the point of the hat and cloak if you're going to be around them? You might as well wear a gray suit and be as innocuous as you possibly can. And I think most of the faults 
that you're describing are, we have 30 days to shoot this thing and the budget is tight. Let's get it done. Yeah. Now then there's a bit of a hiatus there that six years go by before the shadow makes his next appearance on screen. And that's in a trilogy. And we're again, back to a low budget studio there at monogram and three films were done starring Kane Richmond. And that one has a reputation. And I think even if you uh, find it on a streaming service, the classification is comedy. And the reason for that is is you watch them and it's almost as if they were taking a cue from the Thin Man series, almost all of which had been released prior to that, the banter and and so forth, as, as you mentioned earlier. But it really took it a little far. I mean, at times it's almost Lucy and Ricky level. Margo! I didn't do it. I, I just... And don't shout at me. Not until after we're married. And then don't you dare do it. I'll make a note of that. And I revisited those recently because I'd first seen one or two of them a long, long time ago. I'd never gotten around to seeing them all. And one of the things that struck me is, one, it's more based on the pulp magazine without really being strongly based on the pulp magazine. It does have some of the Shadows' aids. They're sort of involved in the Burbank Detective Agency, which doesn't exist in the pulps, but Burbank was a, his communications agent. And the first one, there's a continuity here that they kind of drop in the third one. But in the first one, Cranston and Margot are engaged to be married, and Cranston has agreed to drop his role as the shadow so they can be married. But one more case comes in, and he tackles it in the first one. In the second one, behind the mask, the nuptials are approaching and something else comes up. I think he's framed in that one. And he's got to, he's got to clear the shadow's name or Krantz's name or they're both of their names. Since there's a little bit of um, looseness about how many people know he's the shadow. Uh, I think the police don't. This is supposed to be a private affair. I, I mean a secret. A secret. Lamont, did you really slug a man tonight? Seeing tomorrow's our wedding day, darling, I figured this was my last chance. Well, it was. Did you slug a good boss? Yeah, of course I did, Shrevy. There will be no more coat and dagger stuff for either one of you. And you, Lamont, are going to stop being the shadow. Shh. You are going to stop dressing up and playing little boy boo. From now on, after we're married, you can sit around the house all day long in bedroom slippers. And, you know, there's an issue there that Cranston is a nephew of the commissioner, and Inspector Cardona can't stand him, but he has to put up with him at crime scenes because he's the nephew of the commissioner, who's this criminal, once again, a criminologist, whatever that is. It seems every time I see you, you're with a suspicious character. Well, every time you see me, Inspector, I'm with you. And at the end of it, they're on the verge of getting married. We just don't see that. But in the third one, the missing lady... It sounds like they're still engaged. There doesn't seem to be a lot of focus on that. It -hmm. seems to me they're in this limbo, but that's the thin man, only it's the thin man before their marriage. Yeah, and he, instead of the, of course, we hadn't really seen much of this. Uh, Victor Joy, I guess, the only one in terms of wearing the scarf covering the face. Here you get a full-on mask uh, rather than a scarf that Dishman wears. And which actually looks like the same mask worn by, I think it was... uh, what, Tom Steele in The Masked Marvel? Yeah, uh, they probably had a prop mask that was common or a style mask that people wore. Yeah. That was available for, for them in those days. Well, and then we move into the 50s, and there were a couple of efforts to get the shadow onto TV. 
neither of which yeah, worked as the 19, such. The 1952 one, it's interesting. I found the script to that in the Congress files back in the 80s and wrote an article about it. And subsequently, the tape turned up or the kinescope or whatever to film. And that was a half hour TV pilot. Tom Helmore, a British actor, played Cranston. In this case, he's a criminal psychologist or psychiatrist, I think psychiatrist, affiliated with the police. Margot Lane is played by Paula Raymond. And that wasn't bad. It was more an adaptation of the radio program. It had most of the elements of the radio program, none of the agents or other characters. Commissioner Weston was in almost every incarnation, so he doesn't count. And I thought, having reviewed it again recently, I thought, well, this isn't too bad. I mean, it's the radio show done on video. And yeah, the shadow works best when he's on radio because your imagination plays a role. But here, when the shadow enters the room, it's a voice and there's kind of a light effect that is played to sort of simulate the fact that the shadow's in the room. Have no fear for your sanity, Grimbar. You are too shallow and evil for that escape. Who's there? I am the shadow. The shadow? Only the guilty need fear me. And I see the terror in your eyes, my friend. We don't see silhouettes or anything like that, but I thought it was halfway decent. And if it had gone on to be a, a program, maybe it only lasted a season, but I, I think it wouldn't have been bad. It was credible as a re- adaptation of the radio shadow. And then a few years later, we get another failed attempt. In this case, two pilots were shot, one of which was directed by the famous cinematographer James Wong Howe. That starred Richard Durr, and it was uh, then just edited together and released theatrically as Invisible Avenger. It was Invisible Avenger and then a release as Bourbon Street Shadows. Yeah, I saw that it was released in 62 as Bourbon Street Shadows, re-released under that title, Bourbon Street Shadows, and it is set in New Orleans. Now, one account that I read indicated that that was with some additional footage yeah, added. Yeah, it was some additional footage shot, yeah. But that one's uh, that one's interesting because in that one, it's no longer, well, I guess it's implied that it's hypnosis, but he's got a... Well, we can't really call him a sidekick because he's as much a mentor as, as yeah. a, a helper, a guy named Jogendra. The mind is capable of transmitting and receiving images. When you become the shadow, you send a powerful image into the mind of another. And he sees not you, but a shadow. You know, I didn't review that for this show. I remember when I watched it thinking what a train wreck it was. But it was potentially one of the best Shadows projects because the New Orleans setting took it out of the usual Cranston Cobalt Club Commissioner Weston thing. I thought that was refreshing. Bringing in his Asian mentor, which is out of the radio show, even though there wasn't a specific mentor in radio, I thought that was interesting. Giving him the full-blown powers, I said, well, that was interesting. I mean, I like both versions of The Shadow, the radio and the pulp. I like the pulp more, but the radio show has an interesting format. So this could have been a really good noir movie or TV show. And they blew it. It was just clumsily done. And, you know, Joe Gender was played by a Caucasian actor, Mark Daniels. Someone reviewing it said he was the most ineffective agent ever to appear on cinema. 
and there's no Margot Lane, you know, again, well, that was, a, that was a nice idea gone wrong. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. One of the things early on, I'm probably thinking of different elements, you know, when you talk about it being a train wreck than, than we are necessarily. It, I, it was, it was awkward. It was, it was stiff, but early on when he goes into a jazz club, they just really went with the jive talk. You know the, yeah. the the beatnik jazz talking stuff. So okay, this I, this is a caricature of how this type of uh, person would have spoken. I would imagine because he was just so over the top. Hey, um, gonna square by a good side man a drink? Man, you make an offer like that, you can't be square. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that last chorus went clear out into space. <laughs> square? Did you say you were square? Hey, Rocco Saka. How do you like someone who says he's square when he's really hip, eh? That turned me off a little bit. But it was interesting that it wasn't an issue of him, you know, being in the shadows per se, and he's not seen. There was no ambiguity to it. I mean, you see him vanish on screen. <laughs> look, I didn't like the idea of driving around the block. When I turned around to look, so help me, he just wasn't there. What do you mean he wasn't there? I mean, I'm telling you, he just wasn't. For a moment, I thought I saw a shadow. How can you see a shadow if there ain't nobody there? Then does a nicely creepy voice as well. But yeah, in terms of the Mark Daniels, I think I'm looking at him going, okay, did, did he get the same makeup job that J. Carol Nash got in New Adventures of Charlie Chan? Because it's looking a little inauthentic, to say the least. Well, you know, uh, if you think about it, and you're reminding me of that element of it, it sounds a little bit like what Peter Gunn became just a few years before Peter Gunn went on TV, because the Peter Gunn show was set in a unnamed city uh, that was very noir, and a lot of the action was around, you know, jazz clubs and early beatnik jazz clubs and stuff. And uh, I always think about the potential the shadow done like Peter Gunn on TV would have been really good. Yeah. And well, another show that comes to mind that had a similar uh, uh, ambiance, I guess you would say, was uh, T.H.E. Cat with Robert. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun one. Had that, that same feel to it. Okay. So that takes care of that one. And then the shadow, well, as I mentioned, he vanishes in Invisible Avenger and he doesn't reappear on movie screens until 1994. The Shadow with Alec Baldwin. I've saved your life, Roy Tam. It now belongs to me. It does? You'll become one of my agents. Like dozens of others all over the world. Mr. Shrevnitz here will instruct you in the way in which I will contact you should I require your help. When you hear one of my agents say, the sun is shining, you will respond, but the ice is slippery. This will identify you to each other. How did you know what was happening to me? How did you know who I am? <laughs> the shadow knows. <laughs> and you've got some specific insight into that one. Well, I, I was hired by the Stalar Group people who, whom I was writing for in those days to write the uh, 
official Shadow movie magazine as well to cover it for Starlog in their companion magazine comic scene. So I spent two weeks on the set of that movie, although I can't say that I was on set every day because they uh, they didn't want me on set when Alec Baldwin was playing the Shadow very much because he had a prosthetic nose and some other appliances. And, it you know, I think it was augmented in post-production. So I think they didn't want me to write about how it looked when he was just had this big honking fake nose on his face. But I saw a lot of it being filmed, and a lot of it is, is departed from my memory. But I will tell you the one thing that always stood out to me and was one of the reasons this movie didn't do so well is there was a scene near the end where the spherical cyclotron or whatever it was mm-hmm. is rolling around some crazy room that were, where the floors were tilting or something. And everybody was chasing it because it was, if it exploded, it would have wiped out Manhattan. Well, they shot that three ways when I was there. Straight, comedic, and somewhere in the middle. And that was a thing they were starting to do in those days, maybe before those days, and that they do to this day in certain kinds of movies where they're not sure what tone they want and they're not sure how we'll play to audiences. So, you know, we got to be careful and cover ourselves because this, we may be inadvertently filming a comedy according to the test audiences. So we better damn well make sure we have coverage to make it a comedy. If you think of the great movies, one of the things they have is a consistent tone. And there was no consistent tone in this movie. It went from mysterious to comedic to horrific, to ridiculous, back to, you know, mysterious, and it's death to a movie to have too many tones. I mean, you can have, in an, like in a Marvel movie, you can have a serious movie with humorous moments, but you have to be deft about it, and you have to know how much is too much and how much is too little. Yeah. In, in terms of if you're going to have humor, there should be a thread of humor and not just here and there some humor. But if it's going to be serious, Maybe you need to stay serious. And they shot that thing so that, and this is another, you know, really tragic thing about films is the actors and the directors, they produce all that footage, which is just raw material. It's not a movie until it's cut. The guy who cuts the movie makes or breaks it. The guy who cuts the movie now, usually the director is involved, the producers are obviously involved. Sometimes the director is not involved. He finds out after the fact he's filmed a comedy. He doesn't know. Or he's filmed a farce, and that wasn't his intention. What you cut into the film and what you cut out determines the tone, determines the length, and determines its success to some degree. If there's too much footage and the the cutter has too much leeway to play with the movie. And that's why that movie sank the way it did. It didn't have one hand on on the control saying, this is what this movie is. And this is how it will play. Yeah, I, and maybe this is in part because uh, I never became as immersed in the shadow as I did Doc Savage, but I had a pretty good familiarity with the character and the novels. I enjoyed it. And it's one of those where you, while you're enjoying it, you still feel like it could have been more. Exactly. It, It came up short of what the possibilities were. One of the mistakes they made in the script, and, you know, the first draft didn't have this and the producers demanded rewrites, as they usually do, is they made the shadow an evil guy who was reformed. You know my real name? Yes. 
I also know that for as long as you can remember, you struggled against your own black heart and always lost. You watched your spirit, your very face change as the beast claws its way out from within you. You're in great pain, aren't you? You know what evil lurks in the hearts of men, for you have seen that evil in your own heart. Every man pays the price for redemption. This is yours. I'm not looking for redemption. You have no choice. You will be redeemed, because I will teach you to use your black shadow to fight evil. He'd been a, a drug lord in Asia, and he, he had a change in heart, and that's not who the shadow is. Walter Gibson used to say the shadow projected menace. It was a psychological tool. He wasn't evil at heart. He was good at heart, but he, he portrayed himself as sinister and weird and scary because that gave him, like the way Batman later did, you know, dressing up like a giant bat. That's just a psychological tool as well as a way to hide your real identity. And I think your hero should be a hero. If you're going to do a story of a bad guy turning good, that needs to be the story, not the prologue, and then the bad guy's now the good guy. And I don't think that's appropriate for the shadow, but they, they dug a little too deep into the who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men catchphrase and said, let's make this the heart of our story, when that's not what that phrase meant. Now, you alluded to having spoken with Walter Gibson about well, the the one in particular that you mentioned was the portrayal of Victor Jory in the serial. Did he make any comments uh, specific to any of the other film appearances? He, he actually said he didn't remember them very well. He'd seen them or seen parts of them. I'm sure he was disappointed in all of them because they were extractions of his character and adaptations of his character that took liberties. And that's why he appreciated the Victor Jory serial so much, is it didn't take so many liberties. And even where it did, it was in the context of its, his kind of story. And it was adapted from his, and I think he did a little consulting on that show because there's some correspondence between the studio and, and Henry Ralston of Street and Smith. And there was some mention of thanks to Walter Gibson for his assistance and thanks to the editor for his assistance in putting this thing together. It may be they selected the novels or they selected novels from which the novels that were adapted were selected. They may have said, here are some of our best action stories because they needed to pick stories that would make a good serial. So Walter had something to do with it, but how much I'm not clear on. But he reserved all of his praise for the Victor Jory serial. I, and I, I asked him an interesting question. I said, who would you have cast as the shadow? And he kind of stumbled over that a little bit. And I suggested Bella Lugosi because he was an Dracula movie, came out a month before the first issue of The Shadow, which was a nice synchronicity because they were both sinister black cloaked figures. And he said, no, Lugosi was more of a villain. I don't think he would have been appropriate. And I said, what about Basil Rathbone? He said, no, I think he was a really good Sherlock Holmes, but I don't think he would have been as that good a shadow. And he, then he brought up a name that surprised me. He said, well, you know, I used to know Chester Morris, who played Boston Blackie. We were right. both interested in magic, so I knew him through the magic world, just like Victor Jory. He said, I think Chester Morris might have done good in that part, but I think that's Walter reaching for someone he knew who was in that field 
who he, he could just say, well, he might have been able to pull it off. I mean, he wasn't strong like you know, Chester Morris. He would have been a great shot. It was more like, you know, I think Chester could have done a good job with that part. Yeah, Basil Rathbone was who came to my mind's eye as you were uh, discussing that. Now, here's a question. This is getting away from the movies a bit, but it's just something that's kind of puzzled me. The shadow, I think it's fair to say, is more culturally known to the public at large than Doc Savage. Right. And I think that has been the case for a a number of decades. And yet, Bantam started reprinting the Doc Savage pulp novels and did so until they got them all. All of them were were reprinted, and then you came along and and added to the canon. Uh, Whereas The Shadow was more hit and miss. You'd get some of them here for a few years in a series and another publisher would publish some a few years later. And uh, to this day, or it's taken pretty much this long for almost all of them to be reprinted uh, in a paperback or similar form. I understand there's still maybe three or something that uh, yeah. for some reason have not, but uh, what do you think accounts for that? Well, the writer's individual approaches to their work. Walter Gibson was a fan of, as I said, Sherlock Holmes and some older writers. And he was older than Lester Dent, who was in his 20s at that time. Walter was probably in his 30s. And he came from an earlier generation. His tastes in writing and mystery fiction were of older generation. And his approach to writing was more traditional as it was, say, pre-1920 or let's say, whereas Lester Dent, by contrast, he was a big fan of Dashiell Hammett, who was a cutting-edge mystery writer. He was a big fan of uh, Mark Twain. He was a fellow Missourian. And Dent's approach was modern, modern as it was in 1929, 30, 31, 32, 33. He understood what pulp writing was. Walter wrote more like an old-fashioned hardcover mystery novelist. He was more mannered. And Walter focused more on plots. I consider them both equal at their best, but their approaches were radically different. Lester put a lot of attention on characterization and dialogue and cleverness of dialogue and inventiveness of characters and writing for the 1930s audience as it was. Whereas Walter, he would have been just as home writing Nick Carter dime novels a generation or two before. They were both equally strong and equally successful as writers, but they were very different. Like Lester wrote one shadow novel and Walter had to rewrite it, but it was a decent shadow novel. I don't know that Walter could have written a Doc Savage that would have passed muster, but it would be wonderful to read his Doc Savage to see what he would have done well. But I think by the time the reprints came along in the 1960s, the Doc Savages had this freshness, this vitality. The characters were characters as opposed to persona, which in Walter Gibson's case, he tended to deal with characters who were types, like in movies, types, gangster type, detective type, female type, you know. Whereas Lester Dent tried to create indelible characters, characters who you would say, well, that's an interesting character. And the Doc Savages tended to be more science fiction. So it was in high adventure. The shadows tended to be limited to the U.S. for the most part. The Doc Savages went over around the world. 
And I, I know that Bantam Books considered the shadow, I think, twice before they finally broke down and said, all right, let's just do this because Doc, they're selling so well. It might work, and it didn't. But it might have worked for a while because the covers kind of inhibited sales. I didn't think their covers were that good. I liked them, but I didn't think they were the kind of covers they needed. James Bomber, who painted the Doc Savage cover, says, I would have loved to have painted the shadow, but they didn't give it to me. I think he could have made it sell. But anyway, I, I think... The Doc Savage is a more beloved character. The Shadow is more famous character, but the Shadow's fame rests on this larger kind of idea of the Shadow in on radio, the Shadow in media, the Shadow in books, and not on there's a single Shadow was Doc Savage. There's a single Doc Savage. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, that uh, that makes sense. Now, anyone who follows the character is going to know this, but the novelist James Patterson has recently been contracted to write new novels featuring the shadow. And I don't know anything about, I haven't read, I guess his first one's out. I haven't read it. I don't really know that much about it. I assume he's taking a, a different approach. Maybe the character is more contemporary at this point. Have, have you read that? I haven't or? read the book. Uh, I know the thoughts? second one is due this summer. Well, my thoughts, like it's hard to say anything definitive when you haven't read a book. I read a number of reviews and I was kind of shocked about how many people who reject Not It's selling very well. Let's just say that. You know, it's sold very well. The second one's coming out. I believe three are definitely being done and maybe more in the further future. But I expected reading Amazon reviews to say to have, for, for the old-time Shadow fans to say, eh, blah, blah, I don't want to read this. Or I didn't like it. I tried it. I didn't like it. I was shocked at how many people who said, I'm not really familiar with the Shadow, but my grandfather used to listen to him, and so I heard about him all my life. Or I read a couple of comics, so I kind of have an idea who the Shadow was. And they read this book and said, this is not the Shadow. Hmm. And it's like, that's, that's interesting, because apparently people – who aren't fans of the shadow have an idea what the character is or what it should be. They have a conception and this book has been disappointing them. Not, not everybody. It's sold very well. It's got a lot of good reviews, but I was shocked by the number of people rejecting it on the level of this doesn't feel like the shadow, even though I can't say I know the shadow real well, or I read a lot of my only, you know, I have a passing knowledge of the shadow. So people were attracted to it. But a lot of people just said this doesn't feel right. Now, admittedly, what they did was kind of out there. The Shadow went into suspended animation in the 1930s and was revived 80 years from our time. And he's in a dystopian environment with Margot Lane, who also went into suspended animation. And they're trying to work their way through the dystopian reality of 80 years from our future. Doesn't sound like anything like a Shadow adventure that most people would expect to see because he's a detective adventure thriller mystery espionage character so this is fish out of water kind of stuff so it, it's it's an unusual uh, and somewhat derivative from what people tell me some people have likened it to uh, game of thrones i've never watched game of thrones so i can't say hmm. but it's a series it will keep going the sales on a series they're always the telling thing is always book two or book three People will, a lot of people will try book one, and even if they don't like it that much, well, I'll try book two. Maybe it'll get better. We'll see how the general audience, because this is bestseller territory, this isn't pulp territory. We'll see how 
audiences either grow or shrink or go stagnant with this series as it progresses. But having written 75 novels, most of which in series, my feeling is, well, the, the logic of it is your first book sells your second book. Your second book retroactively sells your first book to those who haven't bought it and sells your third book in the future. And you really have to start off on a sound footing and you have to keep, you keep having to move forward in the sense of you got to top the first book in a positive way or at least equal it. And I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I mean, I sound like a pessimist here. I think partly because I'm so disappointed in what they've done. Given the potential of the character, it seems like a really off-center kind of approach. It's not an obvious approach, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they decided that any shadow in any modern environment wouldn't work. I would disagree with that. If I were doing it, first thing I would think of is we have technology now where people can wear clothes and capes that are camouflaged. I mean, electronically camouflaged. So there's a practical invisibility that's already been proven. I've seen the, the video on, on YouTube and elsewhere. I'm thinking the shadow, if he has his mind clouding powers and he's got a practical cape and practical clothes that can augment that, well, that's a thriller espionage crime fighting character. He would be very skilled at dealing with different types of problems and working in different kinds of genre stories, which the original Shadow did. Some of his stories were crime, some of them were science fiction, and some of them were espionage, and some of them were other things. That's where my mind would go. He doesn't have to be in the future. He can be right here now. Our now in our technology and him being a master of certain advanced technologies that lend itself to being the Shadow. So we'll see what happens. If the second book sells well, then it'd be the third book that will tell the story. That'll be interesting to see. Now, I guess this is maybe a two-part question here then. I was going to ask what future you see for The Shadow movie-wise, and would it possibly be tied into the success of those novels, and that that would be the way they'd go? Well, I, I think that's part of the reason, I mean, the main reason that they're doing a modern Shadow futuristic shadow, actually, is to get rid of the old, outmoded concepts of the shadow, bring it into today, and, and, and make it a vehicle for a movie or a TV series, which, which I, would, I, I applaud as an idea. I have the feeling that if you were to take this shadow and try to turn it into something you know, on film, you'd have the same problem that I was seeing in the reviews of the first book of people saying, this isn't the shadow. And this is coming from people who don't really know who the shadow is, don't have the knowledge of the experience, but have an idea in their head from the osmosis of the character being around a long time. Now, I could be wrong. They make great movies out of the thinnest premises. So anything's possible. And uh, my feeling is if you're going to do the shadow, what do audiences want? What do they expect? What would they react badly to? This is a classic problem with books and movies. I've experienced as a writer, I've experienced as a reader, I've experienced as a moviegoer. You see an ad for a movie, you see a trailer, you get an idea of the movie you had, you go to the movie, and it's different than what you thought it was going to be based on your limited exposure to the trailer and whatever. I've had that happen. The first movie in that 
uh, Matrix trilogy, I went into it thinking it was going to be this and it was that. And I wasn't prepared to go in the direction of the movie, so I didn't care for it that much. The same with the Miami Vice movie. I was a fan of the TV show. The movie left me cold, but when I saw it on video a second time, I said, oh, this is a good movie. I had to get over my expectations. And this is the problem with doing any kind of well-known character. All the individual audience members are going to go with their individual expectations, and they're going to be very vocal about them. And you can't fight You can do the best movie that you can. And if you do a movie, if you do a wonderful movie of The Shadow and Margot Lane isn't in it, there'll be people saying, Margot Lane wasn't in it. I'm not happy. And there'll be people saying, well, Margot Lane was in it. She wasn't in the pulp novels, at least my favorite pulp novels. I think she's an interloper from radio. And consequently, the people will say, no, I don't want Margot Lane in it. And you're dealing with that. You know, you're going to constantly deal with that problem which makes it an uphill battle to conceptualize a good way to go forward to taking the shadow into a theatrical release. What do audiences want to see? Is the old shadow too outdated for them? Okay, let's say he is. What's the new shadow going to be that they will accept? Is it the the James Patterson shadow? Well, let's see if they do it. I, I have this feeling that so many people out there in the film world are going to look at it and say, well, yeah, I know this is the authorized shadow, but it doesn't have enough of the elements that, because they're test audiences and there are people have, they have ways to do field work on this stuff to find out, well, how will people react if the shadow of 1936 ends up in the, the next century and he's, he's a fugitive and Margot Lane's a fugitive and he's got all these powers and their new powers as well as his old powers. How much new is too new and how much old is too much or not enough? I mean, it's, I wouldn't want to have to, to do it. I wouldn't want to make a movie of the shadow at this point because you don't know what, what the, where the audience is coming from. But that will change. More time passing, younger, fresher audience, the less the old shadows around in their consciousness. Maybe you, can, you have a blank slate at some point. And I know I'm going on and on, but I thought about this a lot. And I think it's a real challenge to do these characters as they were. And it's just as great a challenge to update and adapt them to try to create an incarnation that will work for modern audiences. So what are your current uh, and upcoming writing projects that you can share with us? There are so many. I just released my fourth book in four months. I've never done that before. And it just happened because... These books backed up, and I got the designers together. I just released The Wild Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2, which is my second collection of Sherlock Holmes stories, which is a little different from my first. This is not These stories are all they're traditional. There's some occult elements in some of them because Sherlock Holmes meets Algernon Blackwood's psychic detective, who was his contemporary, Dr. John Silence. Before that, I, I'd released uh, Dark Avenger. And before that, I did The Wild Adventures of Cthulhu, which is my second collection of Cthulhu mythos stories based on H.P. Lovecraft's ideas. My next book probably is going to be a book I don't have a firm title on, but I did a book a few years ago, Tarzan Goes to Mars and Meets John Carver Mars, which sounds corny, but it's not the way I did it. I did it you know, in a way that works. Well, you've had him meet King Kong. I mean, uh... I had him meet King Kong. <laughs> so why not? So, you know, he meets John Carter and he never wanted to go back to Mars again, but the book sold well. People wanted to see a sequel. I had, I came up with an idea for a sequel 
And so Tarzan now has to go back to Mars because enemy Martians have landed in Africa and they're setting up a colony and he deals with them and he's got to figure out who's sending these guys. Is it the good Martians or the bad Martians? Does John Carter know about it? Is he part of it? Is he okay with it? Because we can't have Martians in Africa. We can't have Martians on Earth. They're, they, they don't belong here. So Tarzan has to go back to Mars, meet John Carter, give him the, the story and, and lay it at his feet and say, okay, what are we doing about this? And that's the story. So they team up. In the last book, they were somewhat antagonistic because they, they didn't know who each other was. They didn't realize each other was an Earthman. And now they patched that over, and now they're basically going to be on the same team. And they built a team to find the headquarters of these Martians that are launching ships to Earth with the intention of leaving that dying planet. After that, that might be the next shadow book, the collection of articles, the third book in the series. Beyond that, I, I just have some ideas kicking around. I'm very busy writing Sherlock Holmes stories for various anthologies, of which there seem to be no end. I write a regular column for a magazine called Retrofan. It's called Will Murray's 20th Century Panopticon, and I, I cover popular culture topics from 1960 to 1990, approximately. And I do a lot of TV shows. I'm writing Peter Gunn now, a retrospective on Peter Gunn. I've recently mm -hmm. done the TV Avengers. I've recycled some of my old interviews with Van Williams and Doug Wildey and people who were significant in the 60s and 70s in terms of their creative work. And I've been doing that for about four years now, maybe longer. We've got topics scheduled into 2025 on that. So that's keeping me very busy. Very good. Well, we've uh, gone a little bit long here, but as long as it's good material, who cares? So the question I always ask my guests at the end here, what's your most memorable movie-going experience? The most memorable? Uh, it might be the first one. I was I, had, I was friends with an older kid, and we went. He took me to the movies the first time. We saw a double bill of Mr. Roberts and Gorgo. Mr. Roberts, of course, they showed first, and we're sitting in the front row, and the orchestra pit. They still had them in those days was in front of me, and this was in the this was 1960, maybe 61, and that was the big monster craze at that time. And I'm looking at this dark area in front of me, and I asked the big kid. What does that mean? See, that's when the monsters come out of. Uh, I never forgot that. That's a good one because that's the kind of story that you you know you wouldn't get going to the movies these days. That's and true. That's a really unusual double feature. <laughs> yeah, well, they did that in those days because they wanted the kids to come to the double features, and you know, if you put Gorgo first, they would walk out for Mister Roberts probably. <laughs> but if you put Mister Roberts on first, you only gave the kids a so-called good movie. That they would have to sit through, but the Gorgo kept them in the seats until Gorgo showed up and, and departed. This has really been fun uh, talking about this topic, and uh, I'm really glad we had a chance to finally connect in a professional way. And it was good. We can probably uh, do another one in the future. There's still some other pulp characters that have some oh, yeah. cinematic history that we could discuss. So until such a time... Thank you for spending some time with me here on Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you, Bill. And once again, my thanks to those of you who have joined in to listen to our discussion. If you haven't already done so, please hit the subscribe or follow button, and please leave a rating and review where you can, in addition to just generally spreading the word about the podcast. Also, don't forget to visit the Movie Nights and Matinees website and Facebook page. 
On the website, you'll find links to books and videos tied to the episode topics, as well as a link to memorabilia featuring the Movie Nights and Matinees logo that will show everyone your outstanding taste in movies and podcasts. On the Facebook page, you can leave comments about any of the episodes, and in this case, maybe you'd like to share which shadow movie is your favorite. Just don't be a stranger. So now it's time for me to do my own shadow-like disappearing act in preparation for the next episode, which will... <laughs> yes, you have told the truth. The shadow knows. <laughs> Are you still here?